The Athletic. Just to let you know, before we get started, the following episode contains explicit language from the off and has content some listeners may find upsetting. It's Monday, October the 10th, 2022. It's 7.40am. I've just woken up in my room at the McCure Hotel in central Warsaw. Tomorrow evening, the Ukrainian club Shakhtar Donetsk are playing the European champions, Real Madrid, in the Polish capital. I'm meant to be going to Kiev for a series of meetings, with my colleague Joey Durso coming over here to Warsaw to watch the game. However, I've rolled out of bed, and like any news junkie in 2022, the first thing I do is scroll Twitter. At 7.20am, a tweet by the Ukrainian journalist Ole Novikov. It reads, Two massive explosions in Kiev city. A knot suddenly tightens in my stomach. It's supposed to be safe now, or at least as safe as a country possibly can be in the midst of a war. I text my editor Alex, linking the tweet. Please don't do anything you feel uncomfortable with. It's just work. Let's link you up with the security team to see if it's still safe. My train's not scheduled until midday, so we've got time on our side to take stock and make a decision. But now the news is coming thick and fast. More explosions. And now it's clear. Bombs. Rockets. Injuries. Death. At 8.22am, a video appears on my Twitter feed. It's a teenage girl walking down the street in Kiev, recording a video message. This is what happens next. Fireball blazes in her wake. Now another video emerges, this time from BBC News. Zaporizhia, a major city in the south of the country, very close to the front lines. Where their reporter Hugo Bashega ducks for cover during the live broadcast, which is interrupted when rockets batter the capital of Ukraine. It's the shortest window, the tiniest glimpse into that fear, that anxiety, the Ukrainians feel all too often for their own friends and family. At 8.41am, I get a call from our security team in Kiev. Hi Adam. You should remain in Poland and postpone any immediate travel to Ukraine. The Kerch Bridge attack in Crimea on Saturdays prompted retaliatory strikes across the country by Russian forces. Kiev has been a part of those strikes and as such your travel plans have become untenable. So after months of relative calm, Terror has returned to the streets of Kiev. My journey into Ukraine will have to wait. For The Athletic, I'm Adam Crafton. I've been tracking Shakhtar Donetsk during their Champions League odyssey as they navigate playing football in a time of war. In this episode, we will hear how the team come seconds away from the most unexpected victory of their young careers. We felt unstoppable. We were flying. All whilst Ukraine deals with merciless attacks across the country. And actually bomb was uh, shooted right in the car traffic. They drive the kids at, at the school and this happened. This is Away From Home, Episode 4, Nothing Can Kill Us. Over the course of a few days, the war drastically changed. On Monday morning, Russia launched a massive wave of strikes, targeting cities across Ukraine. Putin sought to justify the attacks, with the Kremlin stating that this was a direct response to an explosion on the Kerch Bridge, linking Russia and Crimea two days earlier. Michael Schwartz explains on The Daily, a podcast from the New York Times, why this is so significant. It is crucial for Russia's military effort 
in southern Ukraine. It is the primary supply route for tanks, for heavy artillery, Mm. for weapons and fuel that Russia is sending into Crimea. But there's also a major symbolic importance for this bridge. This bridge was opened by Vladimir Putin, Russia's president, in 2018 to great fanfare. This, for Vladimir Putin, is a symbol of one of his greatest achievements. That is the seizure of the Crimean Peninsula from Ukraine in 2014. Putin blamed the attack on the Ukrainian secret services, but Ukraine itself did not claim responsibility. High-level Ukrainian officials immediately went out in public and celebrated the explosion on the bridge. Oh, wow. Volodymyr Zelensky, in his speech that night, praised the explosion, said it was a good day for Ukraine. Putin's so-called revenge was wide-ranging and brutal. Explosions hit Lviv, Dnipro, and Zaporizhia, as well as Kyiv. By mid-morning alone, the Ukrainian military reported 14 deaths across the country, as well as dozens more injuries. The military issued a further update to say that the Russians had used 84 missiles and deployed 24 drones. The hit on Kiev stunned the world. The targets did not appear to be typical military infrastructure. Instead, this was indiscriminate bombing of civilian areas. Notably, a missile struck the children's playground in the Central Park, damaging the swings, the climbing frame, everything in its wake. The former BBC journalist John Sweeney, present on the ground in Kiev, dubbed Putin the playground bomber. Missiles landed close to Kiev's central train station, while a popular pedestrian and cycle bridge also appeared to be a target. A road junction next to a university also suffered damage. In Kiev, the air raid alarm lasted almost six hours. Even under attack, the spirit of the Ukrainian people remained strong as hundreds gathered in a subway station and sang together. President Volodymyr Zelensky said civilians had been directly targeted. In a statement transmitted via the messaging service Telegram, Zelensky wrote, They are trying to destroy us and wipe us off the face of the earth. Destroy our people who are sleeping at home in Zaporizhia. Kill people who go to work in Dnipro and Kiev. I beg you, do not leave shelters. Take care of yourself and your loved ones. Let's hold on and be strong. Dr. Samir Puri, author of Russia's Road to War with Ukraine, who you heard from in episode three, says it may go beyond revenge for Crimea and also be down to the appointment of a new Russian general, nicknamed General Armageddon, who he says looks like Dr. Evil. Sergei Surovikin. He's an aerospace officer by trade, so he'll probably have quite an intuitive grasp of Russia's ballistic missile arsenal and more of a desire to use it. And the sort of conspicuous in its absence has been the Russian Air Force. It's just not been a factor militarily in this invasion. But Sorovikin masterminded the bombing of Aleppo in Syria, which is an entirely aerial-driven operation with some contractors and Russian special forces on the ground. So I think there's, there's probably also him taking on the job and stamping his authority over it as well. Because obviously within the Russian armed forces, who's messed up this invasion is the, is the question. Lots of generals have been fired, shuffled off to retirement. Lots have died on the battlefield. So again, you just look at this. The Russian army is a brutal organisation. And there was one general who I met several times called General Lentsov. I need to look at the guy and think, you must be chewing nails to have risen to the top of your profession. They're just mean, nasty people and they're remorseless because you have to be to get to the top of that sort of organisation. So I think, sadly, the, the missile attacks of a few days ago, I think they're going to show that indiscriminate bombardments of other parts of Ukraine are going to continue to be a feature. Dmitry Kirilenko, 
the Shakhtar commercial director, was on his way to work when the attacks began in Kiev. Explosions occurred just a few hundred metres from the club's offices. We were supposed to meet for lunch there the following day. Instead, we spoke over Zoom. On Monday, my family, my, my wife and two sons went to the school at 8 o'clock in the morning. I was on the way to the office at this time. And actually, all the things in the centre of the Kiev happened approximately at the same time. So, I, I don't know, have you seen the image where the cars was uh, on the fire? Uh, actually, I see it has happened a few minutes before I pass because our office in Kiev, uh, in an opera hotel located quite near. So, yes. And after that, when I come to the office around 8.30, there was some people who live there and uh, everyone stay in a shelter in the opera. Around 20 people, Ukrainian foreigners, stay in one room for five, five and a half hours, something like this. Dmitry is casually dressed in a black zip-up sweater. He looks understandably stressed, using his hand as a headrest throughout our conversation. He tells me that when the bombing started, his kids had just arrived at school. Not all the schools work in, in Kyiv, uh, just schools which have equipment and uh, have a special shelter. So my school, yes, have these things. So when they come to the school around 9 o'clock, they're also sitting in the shelter. They organize the classes in the shelter, you know, in a bombing. Not in a classroom, it's under the ground uh, shelter. And they stay there till 2 or 3 o'clock. Imagine heading to school, expecting maths and science classes and then sitting for six hours in an air raid shelter instead. And actually, bomb was uh, shooted right in the car traffic. So can you imagine the people was driving by the car, I don't know, at home, which is even worse. They drive the kids at, at the school, and this happened. There is nothing there around. And this situation shows there is no jokes at all. Is for the your life saving is better to stay in a shelter and do not drive. If you can stay, it's better to stay because you can save your life. Later in the week, I spoke to members of Shakhtar's women's team, including Tanya Vishnevska. Her team had been set to meet up for a training camp on the Monday morning. Right now we are near Kiev, and as you know, Kiev was hit directly by several missiles, so it was really hard for us. We plan to have a training because we want to continue our championship. But in such situation, it was really hard to start training because it was this air raid all over the country. And we were really scared for our lives and for lives of, uh, of our relatives. So, yeah, it was really stressful. But happily, all of us are safe and, and healthy. Were you at home when this was starting in, in Kiev or where were you? Uh, in the morning, we were like at home. We woke up and started to prepare for training, like to head out to our training camp. But then we started to like chat, have a chat with each other. And we found out that it was from news as well that there were several hits in, in Kyiv. So we decided to stay at home. We stayed with my friend because we live together with the girl from our team as well. So we stayed in the bathroom because it's the safest place in our apartment. And the girls who were near the training camp, they stayed uh, like we have an underground uh, space. It's like a, a shelter for us. As Shakhtar's employees and female players took precautionary steps to ensure their survival, the men's team are due to face the 14 times and current European champions, Real Madrid, the next day. They lost 2-1 to the same team last week, but this time it's Shakhtar's turn to be the hosts. Shortly after 9am, I head to the Regent Hotel in Warsaw, where Shakhtar's players are finishing up breakfast. Walking up the stairs, towards the buffet, I can see that the mood is palpably different. Several players have their heads down, scrolling on their phones for information, Others are waiting for messages from their parents, their grandparents, their siblings, and their friends back in Ukraine. They're desperately waiting for confirmation that their nearest and dearest have survived Putin's latest onslaught. I'd penciled in a conversation with Shakhtar's captain, Taras Stepanenko, to take place that morning before my scheduled train to Kiev. 
and he still respected the commitment. Stepanenko has emerged as a true leader during this group stage. He's 33 years old, and he's a father figure to this young band of brothers. He's first to every meeting. He's been doing a UEFA course in sports management to prepare for his career post-retirement. The following night, he'll be the only player aged over 26 to start the fixture against Madrid. We funnel into a little side room. If you, if you see on the faces of our, our guys, our styles are all set because of uh, everyone uh, reads uh, news online and everyone sees the videos, the photo of this uh, terrorist attack from Russia and uh, I think all, all try to connect with uh, relatives, with parents and with wives who stay in uh, Ukraine and uh, try to understand understand if they in the safe places and if everything okay with them. So. It's clear that even the measured Stepanenko is now struggling for composure. He says this feels like the worst morning since February the 24th, when the full invasion began. I know it's difficult. You you can't uh, know what happened in in the head of of the guys. You know, every, everyone has uh, own opinion, uh, own mental strength, and something like this, but. Uh, we like like the team. We understand that we have possibility to live in uh, Poland, play football in Europe, and uh, we are in safe place. So we we have to play for our country and for the people uh, who who stay in Ukraine. Do you feel lucky to be here? Of course, yes. Like. Uh, it's privilege uh, for football player, for sportsmen, uh, because our country give uh, for us possibility uh, to to play football and uh, like represent our country in the Europe. So we we should uh, we have to do it and we have to uh, achieve good results because it's very important now. Our conversation wanders, and he says that during a few days off in Poland last week, the club's head coach, Igor Jovicevic, allowed Stepanenko to travel to Spain, where his wife and his three kids, aged eight, seven and five, are currently living after uprooting from Ukraine at the start of the war. They've enrolled in a British school, but such is the hectic calendar for Shakhtar, it was the first time that Stepanenko had seen his own children for two months. Seeing them once more, only makes those images of the playground bombings more devastating. I am very glad that they really don't realise. They understand, but they don't realise what is the worst. Because for children, I think it can be a big problem with mental health. What they feel every day, it's a disaster. And not only the children? Yes, not only the children, but uh, like a man, you can cope with it. Um, sometimes women are more strong than men, uh, you know. But for children, they're angels. And I don't understand when you launch the rockets in the normal houses like, like this. It, it's not the people, it's the devils, you know. When I see the pictures with the children, uh, I want to cry every time. For me, this is the most important, that every children will be in the safe place, and I pray for, the, for that every day. Leaving the interview, I bump into the head coach, Igor Jovicevic, who has a coffee in his hand. He asks if I've seen the news. I nod. And then he says, and now I'm meant to get them focused on football? It's impossible. And then he repeatedly mutters the same word to himself as he goes downstairs and heads out to his pre-match press conference. Impossible. <laughs> I go to the lobby, where I find the club's charismatic director of football, Dario Serna, holding court with several Shakhtar employees. He invites me over. He says he woke up this morning to 44 text messages from his friends and staff back in Ukraine. I point out to Dario that for young stars like Mikhailo Mudrik and Georgi Sudakov, aged 21 and 20, matches like this against Real Madrid should be the best experiences of their young lives. They must enjoy this tomorrow day about. Unfortunately, we are thinking just about Ukraine. Yeah. And uh, if this fucking bastard from Russia think that we will stop to play because of that, we will stop to play. 
we'll play and we'll win. As you can hear, his words are raw. Earlier that morning, Serna had seen firsthand the innocence of Putin's targets. His visitor was a seven-year-old boy named Ilya. Earlier this year, Ilya's mother died in a Russian rocket attack over Mariupol, while his father remained missing. Ilya, therefore, was rendered an orphan at the tender age of only six. A young couple, Volodymyr and Maria Bespali, fostered the child and took him to the west of Ukraine and relative safety. It was there that the club's chief executive, Sergei Polkin, and the director of football, Serna, met Ilya at one of the club's drop-in sessions for children, aimed at providing some respite and escape during the war. Ilya became one of over a dozen orphan children that Shakhtar sponsored during this war. Initially, present and former Shakhtar players donated to a pot of €50,000, which was divided up according to need, in order to assist with relocation, sustenance, health and education. In June, when the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson visited Ukraine, he received a handwritten letter from Ilya. Dear Boris Johnson, I want the war to end sooner so that people do not die anymore. I want to play football at home in Mariupol. I would like all the children of the war not to have a war. Greeting to the children in Britain. Thank you very much for helping us. We'll win. I have a cat, Frosia, in this picture. I'm sending you the flag of Ukraine I drew. Big hugs. On Monday morning, I met Ilya before Joey sat down with him and his foster parents later that day. Ilya is almost unbearably adorable. He's shy, which is pretty understandable in the circumstances. But his grin is broad and cheeky, his hair is trimmed short, and his skin is pale. When he grows up, he says he wants to be an astronaut. The trust and bond between the young couple and Ilya is palpable. Marie and Volodymyr themselves fled Slovyansk, a region close to Donetsk, earlier this year. They're only in their early 20s, and when the war began, they moved to Kiev. Depression. Yes, because war is like a lostness, a depression, and if not for Ilya, then we would not hold ourselves together. We'd have come unstuck a while back. Plus, a sense of responsibility arose. On social networks, there was a girl that was following me, an employee of Shakhtar, Dasha. She wrote that Shakhtar is helping kids who have lost both of their parents. And then we were contacted, called and asked what we need. So, here you have a thought that everything is ending and you're going home on the next day. But the main thing that we and every Ukrainian learned is that you cannot leave things for later. We even understood this when we made the decision to take a child. This was still in Slavyansk. We looked at how we lived and we understood that we could have taken in a child a long time ago, one and two children, and live the same way and work. The thing that stopped us was this attitude of later, later. But later came the war. Honestly, today for us it's a very difficult day. The news, emotionally, to give an interview, it's very tough because your thoughts are all about your close friends and family who are there in Ukraine. And it's them who I'm most concerned about. At the game tomorrow evening against Real Madrid, Serna will be joined by Ilya his special guest in the director's box. The pair reunited at the reception of the hotel this morning. Yes, I saw him this morning. He hugged me. He said, Daria, I miss you. I want to come. Because we have a relationship. I was with him already two times. He's a specific guy, specific boy. And it will be a pleasure tomorrow. He will go with me on the game. After that, he will have a photo with Luka Modric. He will give me a shirt. And uh, unfortunately, there is a lot of kids the same, the same situation in the Ukraine. But what we can do will help to them in this difficult moment. This is our human duty. Can you just explain a little bit about that project? I said, why, why Shakhtar? Because Shakhtar is doing that for the whole, the whole life. We didn't start to do something, some miracle now. When I arrived in the club 2003, every, 
one or two times by week we went to different players always in the hospital to buy this, to buy this, to some family. Our president is a person like that. I say to you many times, he had possibility to live in any country in the world. But he's in Ukraine with his people, going sleep and waking up, how to help Ukraine, citizens, Ukraine army in this difficult moment today. And he can be an example for all others, presidents or normal people, president of the club, I mean, and uh, people with the business like him. He can be an example for everyone, for me. Yeah, and I always find with any of these stories, it's when you see just like the picture of the innocence of this the children. Uh, they say the special operation. The special operation, they are killing the child, every children every day. Bombing the school, bombing the, the, the playground for the children. But okay, we'll see on the end. My colleague Joey Durso is out here in Warsaw with me. Well, he's meant to be here, and I'm meant to be in Ukraine. He's here to cover the football match, but at the pre-match press conference... Developments in the war understandably dominate. Here's head coach Igor Yovichevich responding to the situation. Yeah, it's difficult, you know, but uh, our strength is uh, an advantage for us and... Uh, um, the team is focused to, to progress, to make progress. And uh, this specifically situation what we live, you see what happened. This is not just justice. This is not. This is so cruel. So this is not only football. Football is the, the best thing what happened because move the emotion. But this is only football. What we're speaking about, it's a life. You won't be free. You won't sleep free. Me also won't sleep without thinking about bomb. Help us. This is very important. This is life. Obviously, tomorrow is always going to be a huge event against the champions of, of Europe. But given the news over the last few days, uh, today, so many people around Europe are going to be watching, supporting Shakhtar. Um, does that help you? Does that motivate you? Or, or is the news a, just a distraction from your training and your match? Do you think you can kind of help use that emotion to play well tomorrow? They are the best team, and uh, we know that. But 90 minutes in one match, everything is possible, and uh, they must be at the top level tomorrow. After the press conference, the players head to training. Media organisations are allowed to observe the first 15 minutes of sessions the day before a Champions League match. Then, the cameras are put away and teams are able to work on their secret tactical plans to outwit their opponents. But in front of the watching media, Jovicevic gathers his team together in a circle. Today is a difficult day, but we are together, and no one will take the field in our place tomorrow. Ukraine is a lot worse than it is here, so the responsibility rises. We have to give it all on the pitch. All the energy which you gave one another has to be felt by all Ukrainians who will be watching us. Fight from the start to the end. There is one British saying, which helped win World War II. If you know English, it is... Stay calm and carry on. Stay calm, guys, and go to be fighting. And don't stop. Don't give up. We will live through this, step past this all, and win. Believe that we can win and earn the points. Get ready for a good training, and tomorrow we go to the pitch. While Yevichovic is motivating his team, I meet Irina, the Ukrainian journalist you've heard in episodes one and three. I ask about the mood among her and her friends in Ukraine. First hours, it's always shocking. Uh, first conversation, it's not a big, uh, big talk. Usually it's like, shot. I'm okay. Like, we have no light, or I'm at home, or I'm in a shelter. Uh, after the next day, uh, the shock is the first shock, and uh, it's gone. And Ukrainians try to do uh, back again to their work. And because today's morning was very tough for me, I haven't any desire to write nothing, to do nothing, you know. I'm in Warsaw, and the the weather is beautiful, but when I received that messages that people in Ukraine are trying to work and do their best, like, okay, <laughs> keep calm and move on. This is what, that's, <laughs> keep calm and carry on, this is what the manager said, Igor. Yeah, yeah, I saw this video, unbelievable video, and uh, it's also inspired me, not only the yeah. team. 
simple words but very strong words and maybe the best uh, recipe for us but motivation for us because I think one of the reasons we felt this bond towards Arena is that she embodies everything about this podcast. While we're all out covering the football and a good news story for Ukraine, she's experiencing the war through her family. Like my parents, some other relatives in Ternopil, which was Usually it's uh, more safer, more calm region, but at, at Monday it was feeling that there is no safe place anywhere in Ukraine. In the evening, as I head to meet Joey at Shakhtar's team hotel, I'm caught in a major traffic jam. Eventually, I just get out of the cab and walk the final stretch. I stumble into a political rally, just a hundred yards or so from where Shakhtar is staying. Hundreds of Poles and Ukrainians have gathered together outside the Russian embassy in Warsaw. The Polish-Ukrainian bond has been pronounced since Russia's full invasion in February. And this rally is a blur of blue and yellow, the national colours of Ukraine. It's a bitterly cold evening, with the temperature now dropping in Eastern Europe. But the turnout is strong. Displaced mothers cradle their babies. Uprooted youngsters want to be seen and heard. One teenager holds up a sign made out of cardboard. Putin's face is graffitied with devil horns. Red splodges symbolise the blood that's been shed. Russia is a fucking terrorist state, is scrawled across the top. Other signs read, Putin kulo, Putin is a dickhead and Terrorusia, a play on words about Russia and terrorists. They sing about the ZSU, the Ukrainian Armed Forces, and they also chant, Slava Ukraini, glory to Ukraine. But why is such a vociferous rally happening specifically in Warsaw? Why are Poland and Ukraine so united? Producer Abby has the details. By mid-October, the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, or UNHCR, recorded around one and a half million Ukrainians fleeing their country to live in Poland. Germany took over one million Ukrainians, while the Czech Republic recorded half a million. Britain's data showed that 145,000 Ukrainians had arrived into this country. Poland's generous position on refugees may have surprised those who have observed the actions of the Law and Justice Party. This highly conservative government resisted, for example, taking significant numbers of Syrian or Afghan refugees in recent years. Polish politicians argued that Ukrainian refugees could be integrated more easily into the country's customs and values than their Middle Eastern counterparts, as one and a half million Ukrainians already lived in Poland even before the Russian invasion. As well as perceived closer cultural ties, geography plays its part too. Poland borders Ukraine and Belarus on its east side, And therefore, the Polish people instinctively share with Ukraine a fear of Russian expansionism. And so when Russia invaded in February 2022, Poland's location became key to both the humanitarian and military effort. There were almost 7 million border crossings from Ukraine to Poland in the first eight months of the war. Poland's geographical position on the eastern flank of NATO meant it was both the escape route for refugees, but also the portal for deliveries of aid and arms into Ukraine. outside the Russian embassy, I catch up with Anastasia, a young Ukrainian woman studying in Warsaw. And I just saw uh, that there is going to be a demonstration here and I decided that I need, not not need, I should be there because, for example, my mom is in Kiev and she spent all the time today uh, in the underground. She cannot go anywhere. She's in her early 20s with short hair and a nose ring. She's just so obviously cool and I feel a little bit intimidated. She, like everyone else, woke up to the news of bombs back home. It shouldn't be like this, and that's why I'm here, because I I want to support my country and the people who is fighting, for example, like my dad, he's fighting right right now for an army, and my mother is doing all her best in the Kyiv, 
to support people and I also need to support the people, so I'm here. I know these pla uh, places yeah. a lot because, uh, you know, the first like uh, near the first explosion, it was like in a playground, in a park, yeah. in a city of the, uh, on the city center. And it was actually the pl playground where I used to like play when I was a child. And I know this place and I were like, Why did you shoot there? Why it's you the, decide? It's the innocence. Yeah, yeah, it's an innocence because it is only a university near and this like playground and the museum, and uh, there is nothing where you need to fight. Like why you decide to uh, strike there? It's like make no sense <laughs> at all. And after that, I just like feel anger because I was talking with my mother and she just like telling me all of stuff. So it's just nonsense. I think this the Russia is the really it's like it's terrorism. It's it's not the country or the people who are fighting for freedom or the all the sense features that they tell in you know in their news. It's not true at all. And when you were speaking to your to your mum, mm -hmm. is she able to? Does she try and seem strong so she doesn't make you scared? No, no, no. For, she, for she... my mother, it's always okay. <laughs> yeah, because she's like, uh, she just wished uh, to Putin and all of those uh, people to death. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously there's a, a lot of Ukrainians now in yeah, Poland. Yeah, like millions have mm -hmm. come since the war. Yeah. Um, how has the reception been from the Polish people? Uh, actually, to be honest, it was great because they are just like help our people from the first place, like on a borderline, and they are like still helping people. And uh, I think it's I think it's great. And uh, I want to like say them thank you. Yeah. But usually Polish people saying like don't don't tell me thank you <laughs> because you are fighting not for just Ukraine. You are fighting for each Europe. And uh, actually, yeah, it's true because. It's like happening in the middle of Europe and we need to fight because it's freedom of the whole world, not only us. And just finally, tomorrow night there's a football match mm -hmm. in Warsaw where Shakhtar yeah. Donetsk are playing. Are you going to the game? Uh, I think so, yeah, because yeah, it's actually the Ukrainian uh, football team. Uh, to be honest, I'm from Kyiv. We have our own, own team. You have like, Dynamo Kyiv. Dynamo Kyiv, yeah. yeah. And uh, before the war and all of those stuff, uh, we wasn't friends <laughs> at all. <laughs> Because I was actually like in our like fans, uh, like this like group of the people which is like usually like, like going. Like the ultras. Yeah, yeah. You know this word. Yeah, okay, yeah. okay. Yeah, because yeah. yeah, I'm a sports journalist normally. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So yeah, I was usually there in ultras Dynamo Kiev, and actually lots of my friends from this like ultras are also like in the uh, in militaries now. It's Tuesday the 11th of October and it's time for some football, which frankly feels pretty low down the list of priorities after the horrors of Monday. Shakhtar hosts reigning European champions Real Madrid for what's ostensibly a home game, but is really nothing of the sort. Remember Warsaw is almost as close to London as it is Donetsk. This is the second consecutive game against Madrid. Last week in Spain, Shakhtar were lucky to come out with only a 2-1 loss. Given all that's gone on the past few days, Shakhtar will be focused mainly on preventing Madrid from scoring a lot of goals. They were two down within half an hour in Spain. But that's no easy task against Frenchman Karim Benzema, who's just won the Ballon d'Or award for the world's best player this year, and Vinicius Jr, a young Brazilian who's one of the most exciting players in world football right now. Last time out, Shakhtar's goalkeeper Anatoly Trubin made 11 saves as Madrid pummeled the Shakhtar goal. Everyone expects a similar style match tonight. Before the game, I speak to Shakhtar's goalkeeping coach Francisco Galán, who's Spanish, from Madrid. He supports Real's fierce rivals Atletico, which makes this an extra special game for him. No, I think the world is excited, uh, excited to, to play against the, the last champions of the Champions League and the best club in the world probably so we are excited uh, we are not nervous we are we want to play we want to to play for ukrainian people i speak to galan in an empty dining room in the hotel where the team has just had their evening meal he's got olive skin and dark hair and is wearing a shakhtar tracksuit i ask him how preparations differ for this game against the european champions 
rather than a domestic tie against much lowlier opposition. You don't try to motivate the player because they are really motivated. You are playing with the, mm. against the best team in the world, so they don't need uh, motivation. Uh, you, I think we need to, to calm, to calm Interesting. them uh, a little bit, uh, to give them the, the correct information about the match, uh, not too much information because if not, it's a... It's, uh, it's worse. So, for example, about the individual report, uh, we try to, to give them some videos about them, about the player, about, I don't know, eight, ten uh, individual report about the attacking player. And they have the opportunity, the, the information. Uh, for example, in this case, I watched the videos with Trubin uh, because uh, he wants. Uh, but in other cases, we send we send the videos to, to them by WhatsApp, by Huddle, by some platform, and they have the opportunity to, to watch uh, along, at the bed, uh, calm. A, a video of the yeah, Real Madrid video, attackers. Yeah, video of uh, individual videos of the players. It's interesting. And who, who produces those videos? You do? Me, me. So you clip things up and you yeah, show? I, I take the clips, uh, the best action, the goals, uh, the movement, the penalties. Uh, and I don't know, it's like two hours or two hours, two hours like, of the play and we try to to make uh, short clips, like two or three minutes about that. It's interesting what you say about you don't want to give them too much information because they'll just be... No, because uh, they have a lot of things in their head. You are, you are going to face against the best club, so... En route to the match, I see that most fans are decked out in Madrid merchandise, the iconic all-white colours. To my surprise, they're largely Polish. One thing that's clear is that this home match will be far from it. Many have come out just to see Real Madrid, though many also feel solidarity with Ukraine. Ukraine must must win this war. It's uh, it's the, the the most important thing uh, for all Europe, for for this part of Europe. In the stadium pre-match, I catch up with Arena again, and it occurs to her that actually the impact of war means many Ukrainians may not even be able to watch the match. It can be some problem. Um, it's difficult, you know, because in the news you have one reality, but usually in real life uh, it's uh, it can be different. Usually it's uh, even more scary when you see the war outside, when you're at the place. She tells me a story of a man she met outside the stadium. Yesterday, uh, we stand with my friend uh, near the stadium, and one man uh, came to us and said, uh, I hear you speaking Ukrainian, so you like, uh, Ukrainians, you're uh, <laughs> from Ukraine? We said yes, and he said, I'm from Severodonetsk, it's in Donbass region, so now the city, well, we can say not, not exist, it's very ruined. I'm not sure that man still had a house or a flat in, in the city, and he was with his family, moved to Poland and he told that for seven months he was under occupation and it was horrible very horrible time to live there but in the end they had a chance and moved from that territory to now they in Poland and in the end he smiled and like uh, hug and said everything will be okay don't worry <laughs> you know it's very strong to hear such optimism and hope from a man who uh, was in epicenter of war and uh, saw a lot of uh, very bad things. He lived for more than half a year under occupation and he was so uh, uh, like uh, optimistic. optimistic looking in, in the future. So it's like uh, Trubin and uh, Yevichevich said that Ukrainians are with some special yeah. <laughs> characters now yeah, and yeah, was, yeah. Uh, only have to be strong. Before the game, there's a visible display of this unity between Ukraine and Poland, the two countries who hosted Euro 2012 together a decade ago. Half of the stadium is red and white, where fans hold up the colours of the Polish flag. The other half is blue and yellow for Ukraine. As the Champions League anthem rings out, it's an emotional display of solidarity. There's a curious atmosphere though, because there aren't many Shakhtar fans here at all for this home game. The star names of Real Madrid are cheered more than the relatively obscure Shakhtar players ahead of kickoff. They're just far better known in Warsaw. But then something remarkable begins to happen. Shakhtar start playing really well against an almost full strength Madrid side who are top of the Spanish league and yet to lose this season. Anatoly Trubin in the Shakhtar goal 
The words of his Spanish goalkeeping coach perhaps ringing in his ears. Looks calm and collected and pulls off a string of great saves. Astonishingly, just after half-time, Shakhtar take the lead through a header by Alexander Zubkov, who also scored against Madrid in Spain last week. After that, Shakhtar start to dominate Madrid, passing the ball around, not looking like underdogs at all, which is amazing to watch after everything this team and this country have been through. We play good, so this is confidence for our team. Go on and believe in the victory, believe in the miracle. In this stadium, mostly full of neutrals, the vibe begins to shift and Polish fans start shouting for Shakhtar. We felt unstoppable. We were flying. I've been to a lot of football games in my life, but I've never heard a crowd shift its allegiance like this. It's a surreal thing to experience and very tangibly feels tied to the war and the grim events in Kyiv and elsewhere in Ukraine the day before. The 90 minutes are up. Shakhtar have withstood the pressure and still have a slender 1-0 lead. Could there be a fairy tale ending for this displaced and shattered team? With the injury time almost up at the end of the 90 minutes, a ball lofted in by Tony Cruz is attacked head-on by former Chelsea defender Antonio Rudiger. Ninety-sixth minute, Antonio Rudiger equalises. God, I feel so cruel. Rudiger and goalkeeper Trubin clash as the goal is scored, and both will wake up tomorrow with huge bruises on their heads. Shakhtar are on five points now, but the bad news is that RB Leipzig have beaten Celtic in the group's other match. That result means Shakhtar dropped down to third in the group. It means they won't, as things stand, qualify for the Champions League knockout stage. They would, however, go into the Europa League, which is still an unexpected achievement. But there are still two games to go, and anything is possible. They could still come bottom and crash out of Europe altogether. I caught up with goalscorer Alexander Zubkov to get his reaction to the match, given everything that had gone on that week. We talk with the team and we understand that we have to show our best and we have to be like one team all together. To be honest, we really disappointed with, with one point. Yeah. If somebody said before the games that we get one point, everybody will be happy. But uh, we conceded the goal on 95 minutes, so yeah, a bit different um, feelings. What were you saying to each other at half-time when you know, you perhaps people didn't expect you to go in at nil-nil and you were the better team, maybe. Like, how, did, how was that conversation? Uh, after the first uh, game, uh, we changed a bit uh, our structure, who has to press, who, where we have uh, free space. And uh, I think uh, the second uh, game was much better. I also spoke to the manager, Igor Jovicevic, after the game and asked him his thoughts on the results. Now we are sad because we lost two, two points, so this is a normal situation and emotion, but we must be proud for the team, because there should be show the Ukrainian people that we we fighting we, from the first second for, to until, but the football is amazing, you know, sometimes it's, it gives you, can cut you, you know, but uh, I want to thank the, all the people in the stadium, you know, uh, because this evening was amazing. Some commentators and analysts might have thought Trubin was wrong to come out of the goal in the moments preceding Madrid's equaliser. But for sporting director Dario Serna, it's just one of those things that happens. It's not a problem to do a mistake. It's a problem if you don't analyse this kind of mistake. If you repeat the same mistake, there's a problem. But if you don't repeat the same thing, Trubin is a really clever guy to analyse their mistake. Okay, can be happened again, but they have more experience after this mistake than before. Elsewhere, there's a happy moment for little Ilya, who trundles along with Dario Serna and meets Real Madrid's five times Champions League winner Luka Modric in scenes that go viral on social media. Hello, Luka. Hello. Modric was once a refugee too. Shakhtar move on to their next match, a Ukrainian Classico against their fierce rivals, Dinamo Kiev, 
The women's team also play again this weekend, but it's not without complications. The men's team play in Lviv, where there's been power outages, and they have a portable electricity generator ready in the event the lights go out. The game goes on, and Shakhtar's men beat Dinamo Kiev 3-1, and the women beat Mariupol 3-0, despite a 20-minute first-half interruption during an air raid alarm. It might seem slightly peculiar that any football continues in Ukraine, in this week of all weeks, where rockets hit their main cities. But for Tanya and the rest of Shakhtar, there's no question. Whilst the war goes on, so too must football. I think that it's a main message that we uh, we are not afraid of all these attacks. We still uh, live and we work. And we work not only in our football, but in that way we work on our future victory. Next time on Away From Home, Shakhtar's Champions League journey comes down to the wire. I want more. I want impossible <laughs> to make it possible. We hear about a Ukrainian footballer tortured and killed by Russian forces. The armed forces are entering and just began to shoot at people. They were the first victim who were completely innocent people. And we ask if Shakhtar will ever make it home again. Shakhtar Donetsk should play in Donetsk. And uh, once we win this war, I believe we, um, we have to come back. Away From Home is an athletic media company production. It was presented by Adam Crafton and Joey Durso. It was written and produced by Adam Crafton, Joey Durso and Abby Patterson. With additional production by Mike Stavrou. Sound mixing is by Ollie Bellwood. Translation is by Dima Rebrov. Voiceovers by Leo Kravchuk, Maria Mikhailov, Yegor Mikhailov, Max Yefremov and Scott Ellis. Dr. Samir Puri is the author of Russia's Road to War with Ukraine. The executive editor is Adrian Moorhead. And the managing editors are Ben Green and Alex Kajowski.